Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is your host, and my guest for the first half hour is Kevin Kimball. He is the founder of the Financial Services Innovation Coalition, which is a, a think, bank, think tank based in uh, Washington, D.C., about financial services issues. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Kevin. Thank you, Jordan. Happy Monday. Just tell us briefly your background and how you got to form uh, FSIC. Well, um, I'm from Texas originally. I ended up in D.C. to go to law school way back in the early 90s and started working on Capitol Hill and uh, got a lot of background in banking policy. Um, Went to work at a firm that uh, worked on banking policy, worked on the changes to FIREA and the merger of the bank insurance fund and the savings insurance fund, uh, and kept my interest in financial services through all these years, ended up uh, working for a large financial institution dealing with uh, subprime and alternative lending. After that uh, process, I realized there was a lot to be done in this space, and I started so I started FISIC, the Financial Services Innovation Coalition, to work on access to credit. Uh, at that time, there was a lot of studies. This is in the early, late 2000s, 2008, 2009, and we realized that, um, you know, what, 40% of the country didn't have access to $2,000, or 70% of the country didn't have access to $2,000. And the banks were freezing up, were seized up. They cut a lot of people out of access to credit. Um, we then um, began a process of trying to find a way to um, expand credit initiatives, especially in the underserved communities, but across the country in general. And from that, you know, what we found was that the number one thing killing Americans was ac- uh, was not access to credit, but income, uh, yeah. stagnant wages. That was a big problem. And so we've been on this journey. We created a dynamic organization where we can address a lot of issues, do a lot of research, write on a lot of different issues. Uh, uh, we don't lobby Congress, but we advocate con- to Congress on issues such as uh, uh, new market tax credits, opportunity zones. We try to make sure that you know, anything that Congress does, they keep the concerns of the average man in, in, in tow because you know, 10% of the population has 90% of the wealth which we don't believe is a sustainable um, economic strategy. Yeah. So the, the purpose of the, today's show is called Why Race Matters. And let's just talk briefly about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected African Americans differently than white uh, Americans, just in general in the economic sphere. Well, first, we end up with a um, circumstance where a lot of the first uh, – the frontline workers are, are African Americans, those who have to show up to work, uh, are disproportionately represented there. So you don't get to the social distancing uh, component that you get for many others. Uh, they can't stay at home, so they're they're dealing with people on a regular basis. That causes more infections, more more contagions, and then you end up with the cost if you get sick. You're on a ventilator. You know that causes. The, more economic stress on the family because people can't afford to pay those bills, plus they can't work. And the, even though the government's given a little bit of money, they haven't given that much money to, to people in that circumstance. So they're putting a lot of pressure on, on people financially and emotionally, mentally, and uh, of course, physically. So I think you start there, you see a, a trend that, you know, in the next six, seven, eight months, you're going to see a lot of pain coming out of the country as a whole, but particularly African-American communities. Now, at FISIC, you've called for what you call the Marshall Plan for the Economic Recovery of Black America. Before we get into what you call for in the Marshall Plan, specifically say why you think such a massive program is necessary right now. Well, if you look, this is, um, get to 10,000 feet kind of looking down at the, the chessboard, as it were. You go backwards, and for over the last 40 to 50 years, all the institutions that serve African Americans have suffered uh, greatly. Uh, you turn, you you look at black banks. We at one point there were 75, 50 to 60 black banks. Now we're down to 15 black banks over the last 30 years. Um, black college, black serving colleges are having trouble staying afloat and and and, and getting people graduated. Communities, African American communities are 
in tough straits schools just if you go across the board any minority serving institution is suffering greatly and so you had to have a very race-specific remedy if you go back to not only the reconstruction or the 14th amendment but even to the civil rights act of 1965 uh, the purpose was to use affirmative action to bring about economic equality for african-americans and inclusion for african-americans we gotten away from that over the last 40 years, and that's caused a resegregation of our society. Um, so we, we looked at the need for a very race-specific remedy. Uh, the, the plan we put forward was a trillion dollars. It could have easily been you know, 10 times that if you're looking at a lot of the other, you know, from health care issues on down. We didn't cover health care very much in that bill. We also didn't cover education greatly in that bill, like um, primary and secondary education could be covered. You know, schools in America now are more segregated and more unequal than they've been so in let's, 50 let's, years. Let's talk about some of the specifics. What are some of the specifics that you do call for this $1 trillion Marshall Plan for the Economic Recovery of Black America? So we, we put money in for minority-serving institutions to help with business creation and workforce development. Uh, if you look at some of the data points, Across all of the major um, industries, you'll find that African-Americans are well underrepresented. Somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 1 to 5% of the workforce is African-American when the overall population of African-Americans is like 12%. So we've put a lot of effort on less emphasis on education, more emphasis on hiring. We believe that the major economic issue is hiring and contracting. You know, African-Americans are not getting a reasonable share of the economic opportunities available, even when they're qualified. So that's a big one. So we put a, a fair a bit of money into creating and helping support black businesses. And then we do go in and put money in for education, um, African-American education. Uh, there is a dramatic drop-off from the, from education of African-Americans into the workforce. So they get college degrees, but then they, they don't get represented in the workforce. We like to offset, so they end up with huge amounts of debt without the corresponding economic opportunities. So like some offset for that is necessary if we're going to uh, keep some sort of uh, future economic inclusion or economic parity or get closer economic parity uh, going forward. Yeah. Uh, so this is an actual bill that's been introduced in Congress. What is, kind of reception has it received? So actually, the bill has not yet been introduced. Uh, it's actually from what we were, we've talked to a couple of members of Congress. It is currently in Ledge Council. They're drafting the, they're drafting the bill. I think they're, the final version will have some provisions that we did not include. I think they're going to add some other stuff from what I've been told. We hope to see a bill come out uh, shortly after the, the summer recess is over. Uh, and then we'll start to try to push it. I think the, the the response has been pretty good from not only Congress, but from the public at large, people we shared this with. There's a lot of community organizations and educators and, and consultants and academics who think the time is right for this sort of proactive, affirmative effort to um, uh, combat the, the racial, systemic racial discrimination in America. So what would be the economic payback to the country? I mean, we've just put out something like $4 trillion for the, the coronavirus and the CARES Act and all these rescue plans. They're talking about another trillion dollars. Why, of all the priorities out there, is this the best place to put a trillion dollars into this Marshall Plan for black America? Well, at the end of the day, you know, we're a consumer-based economy, right? And so if you've got 12% of your uh, population, potential consumers, on the sidelines, you know, you're hurting, you're hurting yourself economically, all of your businesses and institutions. If you can bring that part, part of the economy into the fold, you know, economic growth will, you know, increase greatly. Think, if you think about this, we've had stagnant economic growth for the last, you know, 20 years or so. Uh, we've had very low tax rates, but we've had huge economic inequalities. So if 10% of the country has 90% of the wealth, it's hard to get economic growth above, you know, two or three percent so if you actually can increase that number of, of people who are who are who are actually making their fair share then I, the overall economic growth will be tremendous and it'll build up communities it'll it'll stave off the pending health crisis I mean, we're we're talking about healthcare bankruptcies jordan you know in the future here uh, with people who have been sick with covid having hundred and hundred fifty thousand dollar medical bills 
we're talking about huge numbers of of uh, foreclosures from people who weren't working and put their mortgages in uh, forbearance who are going to be asked to pay three or four months worth of mortgage payments in the yeah. next 60 days. So if you think about all of that, it, this this kind of investment is needed to rebuild the economy and to make the economy better than it was before because the economy wasn't working for a lot of people before. And that's the thing we've kind of gotten away from. Um, some of your viewers probably are doing fairly well, but you know, a good 70% of the country was not in a good place before the COVID crisis. It's more than just money, though, that's needed to have economic equality and having less uh, income disparity. Mm-hmm. In addition to money, what else needs to be done to uh, achieve your goals here? Very aggressive um, uh, anti-discrimination enforcement. Uh, when you look down the, you know, when you look at the country as a whole, again, African Americans are excluded from the workforce at every level, regardless of educational requirements. So, for instance, there are many jobs that pay you know, six-figure salaries, $100,000 a year, requiring very little education, but African-Americans make up less than 1% of those jobs. Say, for instance, um, utility linemen. Right? The utility linemen work, it's hard work, but it pays well, and there are tons of openings, but less than 1% of that workforce is African-American. Uh, you know, and even when African-Americans are educated, they suffer tremendously in economic uh, economic um, uh, access. There are about 2,000 African-American doctors who've gone to medical school, passed all the tests, who can't practice medicine because they couldn't get um, residencies. Now, there's a shortage of residencies across in the country as a whole, but the, but the burden of not getting residencies tends to fall more heavily on African-Americans. So there are 2,500 doctors who haven't, who didn't place, but you know, 75% of those are African-American doctors. So we have to do a very, have to have a much more aggressive um, affirmative action program. You know, we're calling for uh, the renewal of quotas, to bring back quotas, because you have to have a number. If you don't have a number for people to shoot at, um, you never get close to economic parity. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answers Show. My guest this half hour is Kevin Kimball. He is the founder of the Financial Services Innovation Coalition. You can find out more about him and his work at his website, fsicoalition.org. We'll be back after this. For all our sakes, we need to avoid crowds any way we can right now. But what if you need to mail a letter or package or get stamps at the post office? Don't worry, stamps.com is here to help. With stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and skip those lines and crowds at the post office. Plus, you can actually save some money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. As if that weren't enough, Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts up to 62% and no UPS residential surcharges. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer in the safety and comfort of your own house or office where you're hunkering down right now. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping products, or you're working from home and need to mail packages, Stamps.com can handle all with ease. I've used Stamps.com for several years, and I've got a large database of all the contacts that I mail packages to already stored in the program, so it's easy to call up their names and mail it to their address. The label prints out on my printer, I attach it to the package, and off it goes. Stamps.com is always kept up to date, so whenever the post office changes its rates, Stamps.com automatically adjusts what you get charged so you pay the best rate available. Simply use your computer to print any official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier or schedule a free package pickup or drop it in a mailbox. No human contact required. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get great discounts, too. Five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 62% off shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, especially now, saving you time and money and keeping you safe in these crazy times. Right now, listeners to The Money Answer Show get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in answers. That's stamps.com, enter answers. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune into Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Your leadership journey must be a continuous process of education and improvement. If you think you've learned all you need to know, think again. Find out the latest from contemporary authors on topics from character to values and everything in between. Discover insights into servant leader fundamentals along with your host, Tom Crea. Tune into Your Evolving Leadership Journey, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Kevin Kimball. He's the founder of the Financial Services Innovation Coalition, uh, which is a financial services think tank based in Washington, D.C. Their website is fsicoalition.org. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Thank you, Jordan. So in this coronavirus, there's been several kind of controversies. One of them is the so-called Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, which has been administered by the SBA, the Small Business Administration. How have they been doing in getting money out to African-American small businesses? Um, pretty poorly, Jordan. Uh, when, we, when this was first proposed, I wrote a letter to Congress uh, suggesting that the SBA was probably the wrong agency to deal with this from beyond the African-American perspective, from a lot of perspectives, but for African-Americans particularly, because the SBA does not have a good uh, track record of working with underserved communities. Uh, and when you add on add to that that most of their prod- programs go through banks, uh, and banks have an even worse track record of dealing with underserved communities, it was almost always going to be a, a, a debacle. Uh, in fact, if you, I've, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but there's like $130 billion of the money that still hasn't been spent yet, Yes. even though there are tons of businesses that are suffering. And so, and then a lot of the money that did get spent went to very big corporations. So the SBA was just never um, a good choice what, for this. What would have been a better way to do it, to get the money to small, small uh, African-American businesses? What we suggested, and, and it's true even of, the, of some of the other programs, is that every small business has a taxpayer ID number, right? And... For the initial rush of money, anyone who had a taxpayer ID number and a bank account could have been able to apply for a voucher, just click yes and get a voucher for five, ten, twenty thousand, whatever number they were going to peg it at, and let that let them get that initial infusion of cash. And then for the larger amounts, some of the based on if you want to do something based on how much their their um, revenues were, how many employees they had, you, they could have had a separate um, pro- process for that. But the initial uh, the initial uh, should have gone out just based on you have a business in existence. We're asking you to stay home, ten thousand dollars for the month. 
shit so covering everyone. Are you saying this would have come from the IRS, or where would the money have no, come? No, the SBA could have been. They could have gone through, straight through SBA without it being, um, without there being um, all the rules, all, all the SBA rules, I if see. they were going to use it. Now they could have done it to the IRS as well, because IRS obviously everyone pays taxes to them. But if they were going to use the SBA, they could have simply let everyone, um, let everyone's financial institution send them a notice. We see you. You have a taxpayer ID number. You have an account with us. Click yes. We'll 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 forward you the the money and we'll send a voucher back to the SBA or to the Treasury to get reimbursed. What, what have been some of the numbers about the percentage of the total amount sent out in PPP that African American businesses have got compared to white businesses? Uh, the last number I saw was, I want to say it was in the like five to ten percent range, under ten. But around five. Last time I checked, but I haven't checked in a while. And, and what percentage of small businesses are African American? You know, just to, to see what the population is. Well, it depends on how you define small business. So, if you a micro business like a barber shop or something, uh, or those kinds of businesses, uh, there are quite a few. I'd say that population is pretty high. But I don't think that falls under the SBA's number because a lot of the SBA. Um, programs don't work for those kinds of businesses so yeah. that again that was another one of the problems so it's kind of hard to compare apples to apples uh, a lot of uh, a lot of like landscaping businesses and others were left out of the process because they just weren't sba quality institutions the sba has a lot of overhead a lot of red tape to deal with their programs another area is opportunity zones now this was passed as part of the tax reform act at the end of 2017 yes as a way to bring a lot of investment into uh, inner city neighborhoods. What has been the experience so far with Opportunity Zone as far as creating lots of businesses and opportunities for African Americans? It's been horrible. So there was uh, two articles came out last week that both um, discussed the lack of uh, oppor- investment opportunities for African Americans in Opportunity uh, Opportunity Zones, Opportunity Funds. Um, for your b- viewer, for your listeners, um, you know, background, an Opportunity Zone is a zone set up by the government uh, based on census tracts from 2010 to allow for tax-free investments using capital gains uh, in the funds. So the funds are created by by wealthy people who have to have capital gains and they invest them in these sort of functions. So basically, if you are someone seeking investment, you have to be the kind of person or kind of entity that venture capital or other people would invest in. And the track record suggests that African-American companies never, or, or businesses or entities, never get those, that kind of money regardless of the circumstance. So if you go back to new market tax credits, if you go back to, to um, the, uh, enterprise zones, none of these programs have ever generated revenue or generated investment for minority institutions or minority investment um, uh, concerns. So as, as a bottom line, opportunity zones were always another one of these things were always going to be to the detriment of anyone who wasn't already getting money. Um, mm-hmm. And that includes women. Unfortunately, it includes women. It includes people in the Midwest. Um, you know, if you're in Iowa, the chance of you getting venture capital money is pretty slim, saying, you know, there's not enough uh, pro projects for them to do with the kinds of returns that these types of investors like to type, like to see in their um projects so it's it's unfortunately but it, it's triply bad for minority or african-american communities because then you get the displacement uh from um gentrification so not only do you not get to participate in the projects but then you get priced out of the neighborhoods in which you live so there's a it's just a it's a bad deal all the way around i, I testified the irs uh, about this uh, back two februarys ago um to let them know that i thought it was a bad idea and Everything I said then has come true now that, you know, shoot for it a year, year and a half later, and no projects are being done um, by African-Americans through this program. This is a controversial one, but some people are saying that reparations for slavery are the right way to go. Do you think that's a good idea? Is that going to happen? I think it should happen. Um, I don't know if it will, but I think it should. I'll give you a personal story. So I've traced one leg of my family tree so one-fourth of my family, to a, to a plantation in North Carolina. So 12 members of my family lived on that plantation for 40 years. Um, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations that they worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, 12 people for 40 years, something like $800 million worth of, worth of wealth um, generated by people in my family without any ability to, to um, 
access uh, the the bounty of their work. And then if you think of all the years they were discriminated, my family was discriminated against, they could, even after slavery, they could never get a chance to, to, to own or buy property. There were always, you know, there was all the tragedies of people who did try. Yeah. I think reparations is certainly uh, a beginning step. I mean, there are two separate tracks. One is the institutions themselves, and then there's the help for the people. Um, I think both of those are legitimate um, requests. Very good. So overall, are you hopeful that this, all the uprising and all the protests are making a difference and it's going to have legislative change? I'm hopeful. I really am hopeful. I think there is a great deal of uh, misunderstanding among some people about what's going on. So the police brutality issue is tremendous. As an African-American man, you know, and I would a fifty-year-old African-American son. The idea that uh, you know something could happen with a police officer is is great. In fact, you know, I know African-American police officers who will work on gang units, some of the most dangerous work in the in the country, who tell me their biggest fear is not being shot by a gang member, but being killed by a white cop. So there is huge mistrust and frustration there. But the underlying issues that bring a lot of young white people out to the streets as well is that the, the economic inequality and unfairness um, is rampant and widespread and is le- leaving everyone with a, not only distaste but a sense of despair that I think we need to address. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest for this first half hour has been Kevin Kimball. He's the founder of the Financial Services Innovation Coalition, which is a financial services think tank based in D.C., that works in all these issues of financial services uh, for the African-American community. You can find out more about him at his website, fsicoalition.org. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Kevin. Thanks, Jordan. Take care. Thanks, and we'll be back after this. Things are tough right now, but Harry's razors are still here to help you look your best while you're shaving, uh, while saving you a little cash along the way. Harry's has your grooming needs covered with high-quality blades as low as $2 each, delivered straight to your doorstep. I've been using Harry's shavers and shave gel for about a month now, and I really enjoy the smoothness of the shave and the smell of the gel. I also find the blades last a lot longer than traditional blades, while they still cost less. I've switched to Harry's and signed up for the long-term subscription to get them automatically. Now you can join over 10 million men who've tried and loved the Harry's shave. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com backslash answers to get a free trial set. Harry's is a return to the essential quality, durable blades at a fair price of just $2 a blade. Harry's cuts out the middleman by manufacturing blades in their German factory that's been honing blades for more than a century. That means you get incredibly high quality blades at factory direct prices. Blades are delivered to your door directly on your schedule whether you sign up for a subscription or not. In this particularly challenging time, you can feel a little bit better about your purchase because 1% of the proceeds of each sale are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. To support those who need it most right now, Harry's is donating $1 million worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. Listeners to The Money Answer Show can redeem their Harry's trial by clicking on harrys.com answers. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com answers to start shaving better today. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. 
Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is David Rickster. He is the founder and CEO of United One United Globe and also HCR Consulting, uh, who helps small businesses uh, arrange for financing. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Jordan. Just do a brief background of your uh, history before you got to uh, creating this ent- entity. Sure, sure, sure. So um, I've had the opportunity to work at Fannie Mae during the Great Recession from Fannie Mae. Um, I was brought on to support U.S. Treasury's uh, Small Business Lending Fund. Um, during that time from 2011 through 2017, I also had the opportunity of being a portfolio manager for the State Small Business Credit Initiative, where I managed a national portfolio of 21 states and territories, um, equivalent to about $550 million. So um, had the unique opportunity in supporting the states during the Great Recession. Very good. So just tell me a little bit about your own experience of raising capital as a black man. What kind of experience is that and how it's different from whites trying to raise capital? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Jordan, that's an excellent question. So concretely, the fact that I had the opportunity to work at U.S. Treasury, I was introduced to um, uh, state economic development practitioners who had access to capital, right? So they were deploying federal funds to support small business growth, entrepreneurship nationwide. Um, of course, because there was uh, the opportunity to work with state economic development practitioners, I also had the opportunity to meet venture capitalists as well and a few um, and a few um, angels. And so at Treasury, you know, race really wasn't an issue per se because I was Treasury, right? I was supporting the Treasury um, and and its effort to deploy flexible capital to entrepreneurs nationwide. Coming out of that program and trying to raise capital, you know, I don't have the institution of the United States Treasury supporting me, nor am I trying to, nor was I trying to access capital at Treasury. Now, as an entrepreneur, you know, all of those, uh, I would say, um, opportunities have been unique, meaning that, first of all, I'm a man of color. And when we take a look at men of color and their ability to raise capital, I believe they raise about 1% of all of venture capital funds that are, are available. And so understanding that, you know, that there is this uncertainty of being able to um, raise capital because of all the challenges. Number one, you're a man of color. Number two, uh, do you have access to the same network? as some of the white entrepreneurs. I think those are some of the uh, challenges that being a black man we have. And then on top of that, do you want to take the risk and 
um, and investing in someone that typically looks different than the investors that would invest in a white entrepreneur. Yeah. So what do you think it would take to shift the thinking of the private sector to want to invest in black founders and hire people in these entrepreneurial ventures? Yeah, 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 no, that's an excellent question. Um, And it shouldn't be that complicated because I don't think it is. So number one, understanding the demographics of the United States and the globe is changing right now. I think we have a moral epidemic and or we have a moral and we have a uh, economic imperative to ensure that everyone has access to resources. It's so important. And so I would say with everything that has happened, Jordan, with COVID-19, and then you couple that with um, where we are as a country right now with all the unrest with racial injustice, um, we are now seeing that this that there is that folks are now raising awareness and providing funds to um, underserved communities or to people of color. And so to the extent that these VCs are touting that they are now going to invest in black entrepreneurs and women and Latinx communities, I think we have to hold them to the we need to ensure that they're going to do what they say they are going to do here. So I think it's imp- it's extremely important right now that we raise awareness that only 1% of all VC funds go to black entrepreneurs and that there is enough capital out there to provide access to capital to black entrepreneurs as well. And I'll just say this too, Jordan, I think once we do that, we will unleash innovation that we've never seen. So think of being 400 years in um, the black community has dealt with 400 years of being enslaved and that mindset of being enslaved. The opportunity, the opportunity for us to provide access to resources is so important right now. So to the extent we can deploy capital to entrepreneurs, I think we will have an opportunity to unleash innovation that we've never seen. Tell us a little bit about One United Globe and how it is helping to address this problem. Sure, sure. So um, specifically, I created one United Globe soon after I left Treasury, as there was a concrete um, challenge in one of the states I was working with, um, specifically the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, where they had a workforce development challenge, and they went to they wanted to leverage innovation to prepare them for the in, for the fourth industrial revolution. Lucian. So we brought in thought leaders from Silicon Valley and had conversations on how you can take a human-centric approach and adopt emerging technologies to support their local economy. Uh, currently, One United Globe has been able to organize a group of about 12 states, specifically state economic development practitioners that I that I worked very closely uh, during my time at Treasury to talk about the impact small to talk about the impact COVID-19 would have on small businesses. And what we are doing is one of the outcomes that has come out of that is to raise funds right now for a global fintech platform that will provide access to flexible capital in addition to wraparound technical assistance. Very good. Uh, what can people find at your website, oneunitedglobe.org? Sure. So what you can find is you can find more information about the work we are doing to ensure that all communities have access to capital, resources, technical assistance, and more concretely on our work um, regarding the global fintech 
platform. So you recently organized something called the Small Business Resilience Network. What is that about and how is that working? Certainly. So that came about in early February. Um, I started to understand that there was an opportunity for um, to reactivate the Treasury platform um, from the program that I worked at Treasury. And so for the last eight weeks, we've been holding Zoom meetings with economic development practitioners, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, academia, small businesses, and et cetera, to talk on uh, some of the challenges small businesses are having, but more importantly, to discuss what those successes are uh, and to try to ensure that the states are not working in silos, but are collectively working as a unit to ensure that the small businesses can not only survive, but hopefully thrive coming out of COVID-19. Can you give me a specific example of what a difference that's made to have that Small Business Resilience Network up and running? Sure, sure. So for example, the state of California, um, through a uh, economic development agency called iBank, um, Governor Newsom provided $50 million to iBank uh, as a guarantee program to provide capital to small businesses. Um, we found out about that, uh, but we were able to share that information with other states so other states could therefore come up with similar programs and so we've even seen seen that across the country that being able to share best practices uh, changes the behavior and understanding that we are in this as one country we are better able to make policy decisions that can impact small businesses very good we're going to take another break this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour, this half hour, is David Rickster. He is the founder and CEO of One United Global, and you can find out more about his work at oneunitedglobe.org. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is David Rickster, founder and CEO of One United Globe. You can find out more at his website, oneunitedglobe.org. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about specifically how the COVID-19 situation has affected small businesses in the African-American sector. For example, uh, the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, sure. has that been effective for them or are there ways that could have been improved? Sure. So it's um, interesting that you should ask that question. So um, from my work, from working at Treasury, but also convening the Small Business Resilience Network we have had an opportunity to hear from um, state economic development practitioners in addition to some bankers who have been working the PPP program 
And so um, I think initially um, everyone was extremely encouraged that the government was able to uh, design a program to impact small businesses. I think some of the challenges are um, with with the black community is that they may not have had the relationships that uh, some of their other peers had in with regards to receiving funds. So for ex- for example, you know, in the news we heard of um, medium and large businesses being able to obtain funding funding because they had access to specific um, managers and said banks, right? So I think some of the challenges that black entrepreneurs or black small businesses who were trying to obtain these funds, if they did not have access or did not have the relationship with a banker, with a community bank, then they were not as likely to receive funds. I think soon, um, soon, um, um, soon um, after, um, with uh, the PPP and Treasury and SBA change, changing guidance and policy and allowing CDFIs the ability to provide uh, or to access the portal, if you will, provided additional opportunities for those underserved communities. But I do think when we think about policy, we have to think about it holistically. And we also have to ensure that those that we're looking to support are part of the conversation as well. Yeah. Now, you you talk about the fintech community, the kind of financial technology community. You came up with an innovation called P3 Banks. Tell us what that is and how can that help small businesses get access to capital? Yeah, yeah. So um, as I shared um, earlier, uh, what we are doing is um, having these conversations with state economic development practitioners and outcome from that is to design a one-stop shop for small businesses. So basically a marketplace for small businesses, if you will. Um, And the P3 Bank is basically the concept of taking a private public sourcing of capital and ensuring that there are resources available to wherever is needed. Understanding that with PPP, right? Uh, that sources of capital, I think it was 600, $650 billion initially, um, um, which is uh, extremely um, a large amount of capital to be deployed. But the question is, how do you deploy these funds to ensure that small businesses nationwide, and then when you think about it globally, have access to these funds. So basically, the P3 Bank is thinking of it as a global treasury for small businesses. Uh, The platform will enable governments and local businesses to establish private public banks, which can access global private and public funding via capital calls. And so when we talk about the FinTech platform, One of our products is being able to source funding, not just nationally, but globally, and being able to deploy that at a global global level. Okay. Also, you talk about how the Chamber of Commerce may be able to help get capital to uh, entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs. How how could they help? Sure, sure. So in our... uh, Designed for the fintech platform, um, understanding that chambers of commerces have access to small businesses. You know, specifically in black communities, the black community works very closely with the black chamber of commerce, um, and the national chamber of commerce would be a, would be a valuable partner for us as they have information as to where these small businesses are, what their needs are, what what their sector is. So being able to access the chambers of commerce nationally will allow us to better deploy funds to those small businesses. So that's at the private sector. 
uh, we've talked mostly about the federal government with the PPP and things like that. How about state and local governments? What kind of things could they do to get more capital access for uh, uh, African-American businesses? Certainly. So um, specifically um, through our work with the Small Business Resilience Network, we've been working, um, we have been working with specific states and making sure that they are, number one, aware of the needs and the challenges of all communities, but more, but more specifically speaking, with regards to COVID-19 and then with the unrest right now, uh, there has been a program coming out of Network Kansas, which is Restart Kansas, which they were able to shore up funds working with the private bank to support black entrepreneurs and small businesses. So there are success stories nationwide, Jordan. Um, one of our solutions in providing the FinTech platform is to ensure access to information is available. Because yeah. if you have access to information, then you are more probable to and more likely to be able to uh, to identify flexible sources of capital, identify technical assistance, and also identify those support systems that are so needed when you're trying to, number one, uh, grow your business, but more importantly, understand some of those challenges and those solutions that actually are, uh, are available. What do you think will be the impact of all these protests and Black Lives Matter and changing the police department, all these protests on the cause you have as far as getting capital to African-American businesses? Well, um, thank, you for, thank you for asking that question. So, number one, I think it raises awareness. So, we have a unique opportunity right now to leverage this moment to ensure that um, entrepreneurs such as myself can also participate and receive funding. So to the extent we can collaborate, partner, identify flexible sources of capital so that entrepreneurs such as myself have the tools and the resources to help everyone else, I think we provide everyone a unique opportunity for an inclusive environment so that all small businesses can survive. So are you overall optimistic or pessimistic that some of the things you're looking for are actually going to happen? I am optimistic, man. I think, um, you know, having that unique opportunity to work at Treasury uh, during the Great Recession and being able to leverage some of those tools and more importantly, the relationships, Jordan, I think are key here. Right. I would not be in the place where I am today to even think about creating a fintech platform if it weren't for those relationships and the opportunity I had at the United States Treasury uh, and to actually accelerate that to do more for other entrepreneurs that look like myself. So to the extent we can leverage this moment for it to be inclusive and, and, and for entrepreneurs such as myself to access capital so I can therefore help other entrepreneurs and pay it forward, I would say I have an awesome opportunity right now. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. My guest for this half hour has been David Rickster. He's the founder and CEO of One United Globe, which you can find out more at oneunitedglobe.org uh, and encouraging the entire movement towards getting more capital to African-American businesses. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, David. Thank you. Thank you and for having me. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.